Hey, drama listeners, happy Pride Month. We are so happy to keep bringing you fierce and fabulous guests every Wednesday all month long. But I also want to tell you that on Fridays, we also have new bonus episodes that drop each week featuring your favorite twins. Also, if you didn't immediately think of me and Dylan as your favorite twins, you're rude. (laughs) Anyway, patreon.com slash the drama podcast for 30 plus bonus episodes access to our close friends list on Instagram, which is even juicier in Pride Month. I mean, come on. And also, you'll have first dibs on our limited edition summer merch drop, which is coming soon. So you're going to want to subscribe so you're the one of the first people to have access. All right. Now it's time to get your absolute life to Beth Malone. Onto the show. Press play. Curtain up an hour in. It's time to taste in. The shade and tea to spill. Ooh, Ooh drama. Oh, that's a tweet. Did they book? Who got on the option? No, oh, I'm not well. What, what star will we talk to today? today? Oh, that's a gag, honey. Say, say no more. Drama. Drama. Welcome to Drama, a podcast that covers theater, pop culture, Love and life in, in New York, New York City, City and, and the, world. the world. Dylan, happy Pride Month. We're in the heart of it all. I know it's my favorite time of the year. And typically we're, you know, jet setting between Columbus, New York, maybe a new city every other every year or so. But, you know, it's mostly virtual this year, which is which is fun. I, I hear you that it's virtual, and but I'm getting conflicting reports now of people tra- that are making travel plans to go to like Chicago, you know, New York, all these different places. And I'm, I'm feeling duped, bamboozled, a little bit of FOMO, a little bit of fear because I'm like, wait, what's happening? Is the world open now or like, what's the tea? I don't think enough vaccines have been distributed yet, but a lot of the mask mandates are being lifted, which is a whole other a whole other can of drama, to be honest with you. But in Ohio, at the time of this recording, the mask mandate will be completely gone unless you're entering like a hospital or nursing home. I'll probably keep stay masked up. I think I will too. I'm gonna wait and see. Mostly to how hide my double chin, but you know, other than that, <laughs> everything else will be fine. <laughs> I know. Well, you know what? It's funny because I don't shave as regularly as I used to, and I used to be like baby face like every two days shaving but in the last year i've like i know your but your jaws can hit the floor with like shock i've i've skipped like three days of shaving and I then i've like done it i know but if i'm ever like oh my god i'm like i don't like how this looks i can i just have to wear my mask you I know? know or it covers zits. Did you hear my cleveland accent just now my mask i know you've been there for too long connor i know i'm like get me out of so here listen we're in the I'll midst of pride soon. This is our, our favorite time of the year. We have a sickening lineup of guests who have agreed to share their experiences on stage, screen, music, everything that they do. And today's guest is actually someone who's at the heart of what drama is because they have ingrained themselves in the fabric of our podcast without even knowing it until today. I know. I know. Our guest was th- th- listening to me talk and I was like sharing this, you know, the Ring of Keys moment. Right, right, right. Of course. Which we've learned more there's there's layers to ring of keys that even we didn't know there are it's happening in the theater community and beyond so anyway dylan please bring in our guest it's time caption our guest today is a grammy and tony award nominated actress known for her trailblazing leading performance in the musical fun home as allison bechtel in addition to playing the role at the public theater her most recent broadway outing was as the angel in angels in america She originated the role of June Carter Cash in Ring of Fire on Broadway, as well as the roles of Betty Jean in The Marvelous Wonderettes 
and another Allison in Bingo off-Broadway. She's slayed around the country in Annie Get Your Gun, 9 to 5, Sister Act, and most recently starred as the titular character in the world premiere and retooling productions of The Unsinkable Molly Brown. On film, she can be seen in The Comedian opposite Robert De Niro and Edie Falco. Hick with Eddie Redmayne, Twist of Faith, The Interview, and Brittany Runs a Marathon. On TV, you'll recognize our guest from All Rise, Brain Dead, Bull, The Good Wife, Reno 911, Judging Amy, The Baker and the Beauty, and more. She is an advocate, lesbian icon, and creator of her acclaimed one-woman show, Beth Malone, so far. Please welcome to drama, Beth, Beth Malone. Malone. Hi, guys. What's up? Welcome to drama at long last. I have a lot of drama. I'm bringing it. I'm bringing a lot of drama to this podcast. I'm living for it. And you're coming from Denver today, right? I am. I'm from, you know, I'm in the mountains, um, but I am in Colorado. And this is where I've been hiding out during the pandemic and I need to get out. You ready to go? Oh, God, I'm so ready. Now, is that home? It's not, I mean, it's where I'm from, but my wife and I, we have a ski condo because we're like those kind of lesbians. And so we kind of moved into our our rental property. Um, When when Molly Brown closed, you know, there was a night where I was going to go do Molly Brown, but instead I went down and packed up my dressing room. So um, it was weird. And then like three days later, we flew out with our dog, you know, to try and get out before it got really crazy. And um, we got out just in time to avoid all of the flight stuff, you know, at that moment in time, not letting people fly and all this stuff. So it was weird as hell. And, and, and we've been here ever since. And it's, you know, it felt like a giant vacation at first. And then it started feeling like some kind of retirement, you know, like a, (laughs) forced retirement we're like okay and we skied all winter and and you know last summer we just like hiked all summer and and now i'm just like okay enough's enough you know like this is the second year in a row we're starting to look at like oh what mountain bikes should we buy i'm like no 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 we've got to get out like otherwise we'll never leave like but shelly's happy to never leave she's like i'm psyched i'm you know she's like where's my golf cart was she a fan of you no, no, she wasn't, you know, she and I met when I was 22, so. Okay. That's so cute. It's adorable. Oh my God. Okay, so now this this production of The Unsinkable Molly Brown was happening, like you said, right when theaters were being shut down, flights were being canceled left and right. Where was that taking place at? I forget. It was in New York. Um, it was off-Broadway. It's an off-Broadway production. We were nominated for all the things last mm-hmm. year. Um, and, you know, it was like, it was up long enough just long enough for all the people to come and see it. And it was really so good. Kathleen Marshall direct. It was like this gorgeous, gorgeous production. Um, and we, we had it up at the, Oh my God, I can't even think of the theater, but the transport group did it. Mm-hmm. It was a transport group production, but it was a fully realized miniature Broadway musical. It was just gorgeous. And we were so proud of it. And we'd worked so hard and it was like, and you're done. Bye. Oh my God, that's devastating. And you know, this, you in this role had sort of been circling the drain for years. I mean, it was like rumored for, I mean, didn't it happen at the Muni at some point? Yes, yes, we did it. It took forever to get it in as it does for anything. And, you know, we were trying to get it on Broadway, but there wasn't really like, 
I feel like in the in the uh, just like the pop culture melee that was floating around, I don't feel like there was a giant demand for it. It wasn't like, oh, this show, we have to see Unsinkable Molly Brown this season. You know, we made it pretty relevant. Yeah. Okay. So interesting because I know Molly Brown famously is a, a woman who survived the sinking of the Titanic, but she had such a fascinating life. And I really never knew much about her, but I was reading about the musical itself. And did it kind of present it that she is like this OG feminist icon? She got a ton of things done. She had uh, an, an immense amount of energy and, a, and she was sort of like a heat seeking missile for social injustice. Um, and she had a crap ton of money. So she just went around fixing things. Like she started the ASPCA basically. My goodness. One of the things she did was start the thing in Denver called the Dumb Friends League, which is a horrible name, but it eventually, um, it was the birth of, of rescuing animals and having like a, a home, a homeless shelter for unwanted animals. Um, that was a Molly Brown thing. She separated the juvenile court system from if you were busted and you were a kid, you used to just go to jail with the adults. And that was problematic. Yeah. She's responsible for getting the um, juvenile court system starting. You know, like there are a whole bunch of semi-boring facts uh, that have to do with her life. And, you know, we tried to like bundle those all up into a fantastic montage, you know, in the show and make it. I love a montage. You know, it 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 was just a one of those montages that you just wait for. You're just like waiting for it. Well, that's amazing. I love a Kathleen Marshall musical. It was exactly what you think, but it was also as edgy as you've ever seen Kathleen Marshall be. Ooh. Yes. She she got to stretch her little like comfort zone. And I mean, I have to say, I think I helped her do that because I launch into things and I'm sort of balls to the wall, sort of um, reckless and courageous. And I'm like, how how physical can we make this? Can we make it like Cirque du Soleil meets Molly Brown? Could, could I have a fireman's pole? Could I have a trampoline? Could I have a zip line? You know, like there were there were things I wanted to do to it to like make it a little more thrilling and um you know, right. and I was like, what did I do to myself? So, but that was fun. It was a blast. And God, we made such great friends. Oh, the cast was fantastic. And is there any hope for like an album or another production when all this is through? Yes, we were just about to go in the studio and make a cast album when okay. it all went to hell. And so when we come back, that's the first order of business. It's already on the calendar. I think it's this fall. We're going we're gonna to make a cast album. So you'll be able to hear our version of it. Forever. Thank goodness. Yeah. I am so excited. I'm sad that I missed it, but Beth, I just love your voice. Your speaking and your singing voice, both. Thank you. Um, you know, it was fun to play the angels, you had said, because the first oh, yeah. thing you hear is that voice, you know? And so I just, I loved that part where I get like this far away from the microphone and be like, look up, look up. I loved it. It was so and I was like, I'm gonna freak the Andrew Garfield. It's gonna be so fun. And it was just, it was a blast. So, oh my God, I have chills. Well, you mentioned like wanting to be physical in Molly Brown. And I was like, well, you got pretty physical in Angels, <laughs> tossed around. Do you know Stephen Hoggett, that ridiculous genius man? Mm-hmm. Um, the devising and the, and the using, uh, using actors to sort of like create and shape things. And, you know, this thing came from London. So it had been, um, 
at the national in London. And so it was already kind of cooked when it got to me, but then mm-hmm. like Stephen Hoggett and Marianne Elliott were so cool about um, kind of tossing out because they didn't feel like they felt like it was sort of a rushed uh, and we have to open. So we have to like freeze it over there. So mm-hmm. they were very comfortable with like going back to the drawing board with me. And um, man, I loved every minute of those rehearsals. It was just so fun because I had the best movers in New York city surrounding me, lifting me up and anything I wanted to try, they were like, let's do it. Let's try it. You know, it was just crazy. And, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, to get something repeatable, to get something that looks really um, on the edge of not even safe. It was just, it was so great. And I, I'm so um, like, I fought like hell for that role because nobody thought I could do any of that. So mm. the audition process was so grueling. Every time I thought, okay, that's going to be it. They would call me in for like another hour long work session, you know, with the, with the whole movement team. As they were casting the movement team, they kept calling me back in. Also, And there was this other woman who made it down to the very, very last. So she had to do every single thing I had to do. First, there was three of us. And then there was two of us. And then there was just me. And I feel for her. I don't know who the hell she is, but I was like, God, I mean, there's somebody out there who's got a horrible story about Angels in America. Oh, well, to me, it was a no-brainer that you were in Angels. When when that announcement came out, and I just remember seeing the photos of you with the platinum hair, and like, it was just so fierce. And to me, it's like, this is someone who is an icon in an iconic piece. I mean, Angels is my favorite play. I even have a, a tattoo that says more life from, you know, the, like the line in the show that it just so moved me and inspired me. It's one of those once in a generation pieces. And I was like, what could I possibly do on Broadway that could follow up Fun Home? What could I possibly mm-hmm. ever do? And Angels in America came up and I was like, that is it. That is, mm-hmm. it. you know, there's nothing. Like I, I cherry picked the two most incredible shows in the world to be in. Mm-hmm. It makes everything else hard to work on. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> Yes. Oh my God. What a good point. I mean, two of the most incredible shows, two of the most incredible productions as well. And then you add on top of it, how important both of those pieces are to the LGBTQ community, both separately and the way they kind of interweave with themes. It's really, it's really amazing. And Dylan mentioned your platinum blonde hair, which Honestly, Patty Lapone is rocking right now. So I think you you did it first, but Patty, she had a, a POV. She she had a reference point with Beth Malone with this hair. Patty calls me all the time and she was like, What should I do with my hair? So I mean, I feel like I sent her, I just texted her a couple pictures and was like, you know, you look rock this. Okay. Me and Patty are like this. But you know what's funny? Um, I was in a movie called The Comedian, which you mentioned before, and Patty is also in that movie. Um, so we were at a giant table read together initially, and I was in the middle of doing Fun Home at the time. And, and she looked at me across the table and she was like, <gasps> I mean, you can't see me, but I'm like clutching my pearls. And and then she started like making like heart symbols at me. It was like one of those moments where I left that table read just like floating down Fifth Avenue going, I love home, loves me. <laughs> Do you think she saw Fun Home? She did. That's why she was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Fun Home. And, and like I was walking down Ninth Avenue once and David Hyde Pierce was walking by me. I was on the phone. I was on my cell phone with my mother and 
David Hyde Pierce crossed my path and he started like blowing kisses at me. I just told my mom, it's like David Hyde Pierce is blowing kisses at me right now. You know, it was just like such a weird season. Oh yeah. You became the toast of the town, surely. And I, I feel like I remember seeing you riding around on your bike during those days. I bike New York. I try not to go into the subway unless it's like really, really cold. Um, I like the subway. I'm fine with it, but um, I love biking the city. I love it. It's one of my most favorite things. And I, I love riding home after a show in the dark. I just love it. There's something about it. Just like, I love that city. I love being on the ground in that city. I love moving at a, I used to rollerblade when I was doing the Wonderettes, I would, we'd go out for cocktails and I would drunk rollerblade home and I'd lived on the East side. So I'd have to like cut through the park and I just had the best time. I just had the, I have the most fun memories of like drunk rollerblading through the city at night. I just fucking oh, love I it. Love, that is so <laughs> cute. <laughs> What a romantic, dreamy um, version of New York that you're like post-show biking or, you know, rollerblading through the park at night. That's that's the New York I want to live. It is, and it's, it exists. It, it really does exist, um, especially in the summer, like a hot summer night mm-hmm. where it's just like perfect temperature for oh, humans. I can feel the breeze right now, honestly. Truly. Wait, okay, Beth, I just realized we forgot to ask you something we ask all of our guests, usually right at the start, and we kind of dove into it a little bit, but... Are you doing well? I have made myself very busy because I don't do well if I am not very busy. So I've put a ton of projects on my table and um, I'm buried. I'm just buried in work, which is which is the way that I like to be, I suppose. Um, I'm writing two different shows, right? I'm creating a show for... Theater Aspen, but or or for you know it's beyond Theater Aspen now. It's it's going to tour, and that is a three part harmony show with three women. I'm creating, and also um, I'm in the middle of writing a musical. Goodness. I have tons of self tapes. You know those self tapes will kill you. And um, you know I've been shooting a little TV. I've been shooting a little movie here and there. So I've been I've been luckily very busy, very very lucky. Um, it doesn't feel like I did a ton of concert work I'm doing because it's pride and everybody wants their lesbian to come sing to them. So I'm doing a ton of the lesbian singing in June. So, you know, you might be at a pride event and there might be a lesbian singing near yeah. you very soon. So that's, I've been busy and pride, pride week, pride month's always, it's always like event after mm-hmm. event after event. Mm-hmm. I love that. Oh my God, I love how busy you are. You are the go-to lesbian of Broadway, aren't you? I suppose. I suppose I am the go-to lesbian of Broadway. I mean, Jen Colella is also, I would imagine, but she tends to, I don't want to speak for her, but I, I, you know, I just think she kind of maybe rides the bi thing a little more than I do. So, uh, you know, maybe I'm the go-to lesbian. There you go. Well, listen, I have so many questions about literally everything that you just said you're like i'm chill i'm in denver and then you're like i'm writing a musical uh-huh. i'm writing a touring show i'm filming i'm this i'm that i'm like oh my god she's doing this three this three women musical is it like three tall women but make them sing kind of vibes back in the day when we were doing fun home um like 54 below kept courting us to do like an evening of trios me and the two other allisons because you know all of these shows started writing three versions of uh-huh. a person at that point there was like three shares there was you know like a young middle and old donna summers donna summers so we were we were thinking about like what would we do and we started thinking about all the trios 
all the badass trios throughout the musical theater canon throughout history. And we, we came up with a list that was just like crazy long and some of these fantastic, fantastic songs. So the, the idea started like that. And then now it's grown into other things. Now it's it's called like Playlist of Our Lives. And really what it is, is um, casting a broad net of women's experiences and what song was on the radio when that happened to them. Oh, wow. We sing that song. So, but it, it, it's women my age. So you're going to get a lot of like 70s, 80s tunes and the harmonies, you know, during that time were just, I, I mean, I, I think that the, those, those 80s and, and 70s um, uh, rock pop tunes are just going to like launch. It's going to be really fun. It, it, it's going to be a, you know, it'll be a, a touring show that's sort of light. You know, it just depends on if we write enough script where it needs to be a book musical or if we got to go after the rights for all these songs, you know, so we're in that mm. process right now too. So it's sort of like a forever plaid type type show oh, or Marvel's Wonderettes even. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, well, I mean, it. I built so far my my solo show so far. I built it around this kind of template, where I would tell an, a story and then I would pick a song that had those lyrics that were of the time that the that the story is taking place, but also like perfectly encapsulate that moment. Um, so I mm-hmm. kind of got adept at building this exact kind of thing, and like tossing out parts of the song that don't work because you can't do that. I used to feel like very um, obligated to sing the whole song. And I'm like, I let that go right away. I was just like, that that has nothing to do with this. So that's gone, you know? And so that's what I'm doing um, for that. And the other thing is something I'm very excited about and very pleased about. The other show I'm writing just got into Rhinebeck, the Rhinebeck writers. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and it's called Starstruck. And it is a lesbian adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac. Amazing. With... Wait for it. Here's the other thing. Emily Saliers of the Indigo Girls is writing the score. That is so cool. Yeah. So I've been collaborating this whole pandemic. I Zoom, like yesterday I sat here and like Zoomed Emily as we writing a song. I'm writing a song with Emily Saliers. So that happened. It's like Lilith Fair, but make it Broadway. Make it Broadway. I have an agenda and I'm not even going to hide it. Like Fun Home put a lesbian narrative down center, right? And you haven't seen it since and you haven't seen it before and no one else is going to do it for a really long time. And I'm, and if I sit around and wait for someone to write for me, this character, I'll be dead. Yeah. That's what it compelled me to begin. I want to play this part and no one's going to make this part. So I'm going to make this part and I'm going to ask Emily if she wants to make it with me. And she did. So we are in the middle of that. That is huge. Congratulations and thank you, because I was actually thinking about it when I was, of course, doing my prep for this and falling in love with Fun Home all over again, as if it's never not something in my mind. But you're right. There's not been a lesbian narrative that's, you know, the main focus of the story. Sure, there's been lesbian storylines and supporting moments and like, I can think of Head Over Heels. I can't think of anything else. You know, at the end of 95, Roz, the villain, you're like, oh, she's been a lesbian the whole time. Well, that's what uh-huh. Frankie, you know, uh, there's a million of those. And I could give mm-hmm. you examples. And it's sort of like, the le- you know, the word lesbian often, you know, elicits a laugh. Even in um, Fun Home, before people learn how to listen to that show, because before you're given permission to hear the word lesbian and just take it seriously and, and put some humanity behind it, before that, the word lesbian drops earlier in the show and it almost always elicited a laugh until mm. the audience learned that 
there's dignity behind that word. I'm thinking about different moments in that show. And I am, I think about the part where she, you say like the, the lesbian pulp novel and the, the tawdry, the tawdry love and the shadows and everything like that. And, yeah. and, oh my God, that show is so brilliant. I want to talk all about it, but before we get to it, I think we should go back to the beginning of your life and a life in the arts. We borrowed the line from Fun Home and call it a ring of keys moment, that moment of recognition, actually inspired by what Janine Tesori said in her Tony acceptance speech about her own discovery of realizing she could be a woman in, in the arts. But Beth, do you feel like you have a ring of keys moment as it relates to this business we call show? Yes, I do. I for sure do. Um, first of all, just for this podcast and for any anyone who's listening, um, some nerdy backstory on the Ring of Keys panel that Alison Bechtel drew. Um, if anybody needs like the source material of the word Ring of Keys, um, Alison is sitting in a luncheonette in Philadelphia with her dad and her dad is reading the paper. So she's pretty much sitting across from a wall and this dyke walks in the front door with a handcart full of packages. It's, you know, she's, she's got basically a dolly that's full of boxes and she's the first full on like butch lesbian, Alison Bechtel, young baby dyke, Alison Bechtel. She's probably like eight years old at the time. And she's never seen a woman like this, a woman who's given herself permission to like present male. And she has this fantastic, ring of keys on her belt loop and Allison fixates on that ring of keys as like this symbol of like unnameable identification. Allison is like, I am that, that is me. I am like you. I don't know what you are, but I recognize myself. So that is the origin of the ring of keys moment. And um, you know, people use it for all kinds of things. Like, like we had talked about earlier, sometimes I see a child having their ring of keys moment on me and I'm like, Oh, you're, you're having it. You're having it right now. Yes. Yes. Young girl, there is a future for you in the future. <laughs> so my ring of keys moment for, um, for showbiz was literally, I, I had no idea what a musical was. I had no idea because I was raised in the middle of Colorado on a ranch and we were ranchy people and nobody in my house was like, Hey, let's go to the theater. <laughs> that just was not the house I was raised in. So I stumbled upon singing in the rain on TV movie musical. And I went there. I fell head over heels instantly in love with it. I even, I was so young and so unabashed. I ran out to the kitchen and said, mom, mom, the most amazing thing is on TV. And she was like, yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's Singing in the Rain. That's a musical. And I was like, I want to go to there. This is where I want to go to. And that was my Ring of Keys moment. And I, and then after that, I was just like voracious. And I, I watched all the movie musicals, all of them. And, and when I have a birthday, like this year, when it's my special day and I get to make people do whatever I want, this year I made my mom and my wife watch Funny Girl and Funny Lady back to back. I love it. What is your favorite movie musical? Singing in the Rain continues to be my thing. You know, but it's not like, it's Donald O'Connor in Singing in the Rain. 
I mean, but I'll watch, I'll watch anything. If it comes across my screen, the, the most recent Chicago, mm-hmm. the dream girls that got made recently. I love, I love them. I love them. If they're well done, you know, I've, you know, Greece too. I'll even watch Greece too. Oh, We're going to bowl tonight. <laughs> We're going to bowl tonight. Yeah. I'll even watch that. So. <laughs> well, I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer in that one. I mean, Come on. yikes, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> her her love interest is so hot to me. <laughs> His name was Maxwell Caulfield, and he was also in um, like Dynasty or the spinoff of Dynasty. Mm-hmm. Remember that? I mean, oh, but yeah. he lived across the street from us. We were friends with Maxwell Caulfield, and every time you know, like Shelley would be looking out the front window, she goes, "Cool riders on the street, cool riders moving in his car, cool rider got a ticket." <laughs> I'm obsessed. Literally, what is your life, Beth? I first of all. I had tears welling up in my eyes as you described the moment of the panel in Fun Home, the Ring of Keys scenario of it all. And I just thank you for sharing that and hearing your iconic voice reading all that just gave me full body chills. But I am curious, like, did you have one for your own identity as being a queer person? Oh, 100%. I know exactly. I mean, there were a lot of little ones, but the one where I was like, boom, was Candleshoe. The Disney movie, watching Jodie Foster be a tough little punk in that thing. And I left that theater going, I'm a tough little punk. I'm that. I'm her. I'm badass. I'm like a dude, but I'm a chick. You know, and and I don't know what the hell I was doing, but I was like, you know, being very, very inspired by the way Jodie Foster took up space in that movie. Mm. And also I loved her and I became obsessed with her. And then I like would cut things out of magazines and like stick them in my book and like hide Jodie Foster paraphernalia and like write her name down on the inside of my pocket so I could look at it like a freak. Loved her very much. That is so precious. But also like, I think that it all makes sense looking back. I mean, I I see some career parallels as well between Jodie has, you know, been on... Well, she was on the screen side of things and now she's kind of behind the camera. Now you're going behind the writer's table and there's definitely some some parallels. Wait, I just, I'm out of curiosity, what's your favorite Jodie Foster role? Oh my goodness. Well, let's see. Um, you know, as she got older and the roles changed, um, you know, I, I, there, was, there were things that I was like, well, that was a miss. But uh, <laughs> like, you never want to watch Summersby, like ever. But um <laughs> Like contact, I love contact. Mm-hmm. She was so tragic and brilliant in The Accused, and of course that was a long time ago. And then you've got the other one that came out, and then you look, you have to revisit those scenes between who is that? Who is that in The Accused? Uh, who's now a big dyke? Kelly McGillis. Yes, yes. Kelly McGillis. So you have yeah. to revisit those scenes with that lens uh-huh. and be like. I see what's going on. Oh, here. I love it. You're tapping into something though when you're saying like you were obsessed. You were cutting out magazine pictures. You were writing her name. Like that's something from my childhood that I think I did too about like, you know, Brad Pitt or whoever it was. And I forgot. But it's that like it's that identification. It's it's obsession in its purest form of like, I want every piece of this. I I love this. There's there's so many emotions and feelings revolved around this person or this identity or what they could mean to me or what I think they mean to me. It's so special. I mean, and now as myself, as like an out gay man who's an adult, I think about, you know, myself as a kid or every year around in Pride Month, I'm always like, 
what do, what did I think of gay people back then? And what do I think of them now? And what does pride mean to me now? And I guess I'm curious to ask you that, Beth. What does pride mean to you? I think when you, when you think about how pride is a big celebration of, of identity and being out and being visible, Sometimes you take it for granted and be like, "Ugh, I hate pride. Oh, I'm not going out. Oh, I can't. I can't. Because it does become like, inch, 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 inch. and for like lesbians, it, it becomes very like gay man heavy um, or like, you know, the dyke march is always interesting. I always like to watch the dyke march just because um, mm-hmm. I love seeing that many lesbians all in one place because they're sort of like birds they where do they go in the daytime you know <laughs> but I, th- I like to think of the absence of it of the life before it uh, of what would happen what was it mm. like if this were it not for pride were it not for visibility were it not for acceptance were it not for the revolution of uh, social change that has happened and that they tried to undo that they're trying to roll back I think it's more important than ever that we show up and that we show up with all the love and all the self-love and all the love for each other and and our community, because we are in a a sort of civil war. And and that is Mm -hmm. not an exaggeration because I've been in Colorado for a year. It's dangerous. I don't know if showing up for pride is going to make any difference to the people that it needs to make a difference for. In fact, I'm positive it's not. But that is why I want to create more and more queer content, because I think the way to pop through that bubble of misconception is with a single narrative. That is the only way that a person can develop empathy um, for otherness. And, And art leads the way for that. Art changes your heart. And when your heart changes, your vote changes. You can't just change someone's vote. Mm hmm. So I think that what the work we do is incredibly powerful and incredibly valuable. And it is not extra. It is essential, I think. Boom. That is my, that is my preach. Boom. Mic drop. You said so many amazing, powerful things there. So thank you, Beth. I, I always think about how important representation is. And you're creating representation that will... Like, you know, they won't have to just see Jodie Foster and try to imagine like, oh, oh, I connect with her, but I don't know if she's really telling like a lesbian narrative. You know what I mean? You're creating stories that are going to be explicit. Gay baiting. It still happens all the time. Like, I love the new show Clarice on TV. I think that it's really Mm -hmm. well written. And, you know, I'm a a fan of that material because of Jodie Foster. But um, and I read all the Harris books. But what they're doing really well is they're not letting people off the hook. They're writing the friendship that she has. I can't think of the character's name that they, she busted her for being racist. Oh, wow. You know, just like in, in a very clueless white privilege way, Clarice was going forward with her needs and her, you know, what she wanted. And um, God, I can't think of this. can't believe I can't think of her character's name. But um, this actress is fantastic. And, and she's she's. I mean, one of the best things on the show is this, this actress playing her best friend. And um, it just, I think that it, it's, it's important. It's changing. And that, that is the point that things are changing and, and it's important. And, but it is, it's, we're making headway for this. Mm-hmm. 
that's mainstream television. That's that's on network television, you know, which I love. But mm-hmm. they are doing this like queer baiting thing between those two, where they put them in bed and they made them like gaze at each other for these long, long glances. And then they were like, mm, gotta go. You know, I'm just like, I'm so sick of that. I'm like, be gay. I know. Like write a lesbian character that's down center, please. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, we have to create it to make it more and more. Like not everyone's gay, but once in a while, somebody is. And they have, they down center and not upright and up left. That's true. I think about, you know, Grey's Anatomy, which I've watched forever. And even the the gay women characters are usually bi or they'll have like a, a tryst with a man at some point and then happen to get pregnant. You know, it's like things like that, that it's never just this character is gay. That is who they are. And that's like their storyline throughout this whole thing. Yeah. It's like, I, you know, I've been this my life, my whole life. I know who I am and I know what I want. And you're going to see this theme repeatedly in my life. You're not going to see me suddenly dating a man. You're just not. Mm -hmm. Wow. Much to think about, seriously. I I know there there are so many things I want to talk to you about, Beth, but I I do want to be respectful of your time. We have to just talk a little bit about Fun Home because Connor and I got to see it multiple times. I've reread the actual comic, the graphic novel multiple times. What was that experience like for you? doing fun home? Well, you know, it was a long experience and it was a, it was a, an experience that started out very small and very safe and very intimate and very pure. And I feel like the small, intimate, pure beginning, like Sam Gold, our director, he continued to urge us to treat every single performance as a rehearsal, as an exploration and not a performance. And that, Mm. felt very um, exploratory and not performative. And that's why the acting was very small and was enough. I learned a whole new skill set doing that show of for acting. No, just like acting skill set of like, what reads? Well, honesty reads and honesty is enough. Truth is enough. People just thought I was behaving out there. That's why it's been very hard for people to divorce that character from me personally, because it didn't seem like I was acting, you know, none of us seemed like we were acting. Mm. We were just sort of like schlumping around the stage, doing our tasks. Trying not to fall into the, uh, but. <laughs> oh my gosh. One time Sydney Lucas was walking straight toward a pit that hadn't closed. And she had her head in the, in the notebook that she had been drawing in. And she looked up just at the last minute and leapt over it. Judy Kuhn like caught her on the side of the piano and the show stopped for a second. Judy was like, are you okay? Sydney was like, mm-hmm. and the thing came up, it closed. And then we went on with the scene. It was like oh disaster averted, like could have been so bad. Oh my God. Could have been bad. So, but Fun Home started with a, an email after I'd said yes to it. First of all, it started with an audition. I was doing this other lesbian musical, the only other lesbian musical. And I had written that from um, Namped all the way to like Kevin McCollum had optioned it and it was very edgy. And then 2008 happened and everybody backed away from edgy material. Um, mm-hmm. So it got shelved and it waylaid and it just it languished in obscurity and then just died a slow death. So I was in the very last production of that directed by Peter Schneider. What was that called? It was called The Breakup Notebook. And we were doing it in Asbury Park to see if there was any 
anybody that was going to come and like pick it up and option it. And nobody did. So I went back to LA where I was living and just thought my career is over because something else had happened. Oh, I hadn't gotten into Sister Act. The show I had toured, I, I had done all of the formative productions of Sister Act playing the young nun, the young novitiate. And when it, they cast it, they cast someone 20 years younger than me, 20, 20, not 10, not 15, 20 years younger than me. Cause I was fully 40 years old and I was playing the young nun. So there's no way I should have been playing that part anyway. But um, that was real. So uh, I was literally looking at, at like transitioning out of acting. I didn't know what my next move was. I couldn't see a next move. And then this audition came into my inbox of um, the public wants you to put yourself on tape for this thing. And it was this bizarre little monologue where Allison used to video blog. Allison Bechtel herself used to, we call her the real Allison Bechtel and we've, called her T-Rab, like a T-Rex. But uh-huh. so T-Rab had, had done a lot of um, video blogging. And so they ripped off one of these monologues where she's just talking about like her weird ass process into a camera. And then they just made me do that into a camera. And I sent it and they hired me. And so Janine Sorry started emailing me these like rehearsal tracks that she had just kind of like sung into her phone and and sent and the first thing that came was this like bizarre alluring like I couldn't get enough of it couldn't get it out of my head I couldn't quite make sense of it but I needed more of it that kind of song um it was this it was like those chords that go boom dun, boom dun. and then it was Janine going right angle of the leg hmm that gathers in his sweater were his glasses round? No, square across the top, bum, bum, bum. Half moons and me, striped shirt, match, watching dad, thought balloon, daddy, comma, hey, daddy, come here. Okay, I need you. All of that, like the way the mind works while drawing, set to bizarre Janine Tesori <laughs> uh, melody. I just was like, yes, this, whatever this is, me, I want sign me up. I'll do it for free. I'll come in. And pretty much like the first, the first couple of years were very small like that. It was, it was, you would go. And then that, that was a, that was a 29 hour reading after which we did our first sort of on its feet presentation to the first time Alison Bechtel herself ever saw any of it. Um, and it was very emotional. I remember sitting in the Lou Esther hall and, you know, that's the little tiny flat space theater in the public um, and mm-hmm. all these folding chairs under overhead lighting, basically just doing it uh, with scripts in front of us. And Alison Bechtel just like mm-hmm. crying mm. and, and, and just going, this is so weird to be playing her and she's sitting right there and this is her dad. And this is, and she's not that much older than me. this happened like just a few years ago, you know, it's just like so intense. She's so brave for having written it in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. And so brave for having to sit through it. And she just, she doesn't regret a minute of it. She said it was, it was so hard and it was so awful and it was so wonderful. It's just uh, all the things. Mm, probably healing. It reminds me of that, that Carrie Fisher quote that Meryl Streep spoke aloud at, I think it was the Golden Globes where she said, take your broken heart and make it into art. It reminds me of that. That's the thing we do as artists. I think we take pain and we spin it into beauty, which is a magic trick. This is, it's a magic trick. When, when people suffer loss and then it's really got awful and gut wrenching and painful. And you think, I don't know how you're going to survive that. And then three seasons later, they 
put something beautiful into the world. It's like, this is your response to pain, putting mm-hmm. beauty into the world. How glorious, how, how hope inspiring. Like, that's why I, that's why I just think we're the best people in the world because that takes courage. That takes grit. So Allison would come and see it when you were doing, was she very involved in watching? Did she ever contribute to the actual musical other than her obvious contribution to the musical? There was only one thing that she took, uh, she took up and that was the kind of wallpaper that was in their house. That very, very specific wallpaper was designed by, oh God, you're going to have to Google it. Who designed that wallpaper? Um, it's very specific. And in the script, Lisa had written, um, Lisa Crone had written that it was um, a very close match to, and Allison said, no, no, it wasn't a close match. He found it and he pursued it and he ordered it and he waited for it. And it wasn't a close match. It was authentic. It was the real designer wallpaper. So that was the only <laughs> thing. That's the, that is the level at which we were working. And David Zinn, our gorgeous, intense, brilliant, genius scenic designer, um, you know, he, he, he took up that mantle of, uh, of, of pursuing. And our set just was so gorgeous. William Morris. Oh, God. <laughs> God, I thought of William Morris wallpaper. So that was the, that was the only bailiwick for Alison Bechtel. She, she was like, everything else. I don't know how I'd tell this story on stage. I don't know how I'd turn graphic novel structure into a musical, you know, because it moves all mm-hmm. over in time and space. It's like, now I'm eight. Now I'm 30. Now I'm 15. You know, how do you do that? So it was tricky. It was really, really hard. And how does it behave when you have this omnipresent narrator, the top blocks mm-hmm. in, the, in the panels are the only places my character exists. It's that omnipresent Alison Bechtel hand writing from her 40-year-old perspective. This is what I know now. My father treated his children like furniture and his furniture like children. Mm-hmm. That's my voice in it. So Tony Kushner, who would become my close collaborator later, kept fighting to have my character cut. He was like, this, well, I don't understand why you need to have this person floating around. The satellite in everybody's scenes, get her out of there. Just like tell the story. I think it was both Lisa and Janine who was like, I understand you feel that way, Tony. Mm-hmm. Never say it again because it's not going to happen. And you continue saying, saying that and we've heard it. We understand that's how you feel. It's not happening. You might as well stop saying it. And I was like, <laughs> thank God, thank God I wouldn't lose that part, you know, cause they could have cut it. Like there was one point where I opened the mm. script and I was barely in it because they just didn't know how the modality of this person and what, and I barely said anything. I mean, there was a lot of space in my show. It was very full internally but when i opened my mouth to speak it was much more impactful when i said less yeah i think well i think about you know the genius of the the telephone wire scene of your character inserting herself into this memory and that's the only time that really happens usually she's telling it but then she's kind of trying to relive it and maybe see if the ending would be different this time but just um experiencing that sitting next to my dad and my mom and we were supposed to be in the last row at the circle and square and they had some maybe no show so they moved us down and being directly across from you and michael Cerverus and experiencing that it was it was a new ring of keys moment for me it was truly transcendent and it was the power of art and thank goodness they didn't cut 
your character down to not be in that scene. Because <laughs> hypothetically, it would have been the middle Allison that was in that moment. Yes, but, you know, structurally, and when you watch Fun Home again in the future, the narrator gets closer and closer and closer to the memories um, as the show progresses. It sort of funnels you further and further into a corner where she has no separation between the memory and her experience anymore. Mm. And that's what happened to Allison as she wrote it. She just, you know, she went in a deep dive and, and then, you know, the memories started to feel more and more present, more and more like her reality than reality was feeling. And so that's what has happened in the show. It's like, you know, when you get to New York and that really upsetting memory of him leaving us in the apartment when Mm -hmm. he goes out, the pony girl scene, right? Yeah, pony girl. You know, the, the one memory that Allison wasn't present for was when he's picking up guys in the car. Um, she wasn't there. She has to make herself go there. Mm-hmm. She has to make herself remember a thing she wasn't there for. It's like, imagine what it would have been like for my dad to be driving down a road and see a student that he knows and pull over and ask him if he wants a ride, knowing he's got beer in the back. Mm-hmm. He's going to offer this kid a beer. And that's when it all unraveled, when he when he got arrested. And that's when he ended up, he painted himself into a corner where he, he could either be outed and shamed and his whole life could have been turned upside down or if he could, he would just like take the easy route and exit. And it's a musical. Whee! And it was the best musical. It won the Tony. And that was so huge and so special. And all the speeches that night were so incredible. And Michael's speech and... Unfortunately, the Janine and Lisa speech that didn't air on the main show, but you know, all of those different things. But I look forward to seeing you give a speech like that with uh, with Starstruck one day. You never know. Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes, never know. Yeah, I think three Tony seasons from now, you can look for us. Okay, well, we'll be there front row. <laughs> I love it. Yes, we will. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I could talk to you forever and ever about everything, but before we get to dose of drama, I just need to ask, what was it like working with Andrew Garfield and Angels in America? And is he a dream like I imagined? If he's not, we'll cut this, but <laughs> do you want the real answer? Do you want like a, a politically correct answer? Um, no. <laughs> Andrew and I had a lot of fun together because of we had, you know, we basically rolled around on the floor for a month before, you know, I got to fuck him, which was so fun. You know what I mean? Like that scene where I'm like grabbing his hair and like, uh-huh. I'm the top bitch. And um, that was really fun for me. And I think for him too, he was very open and very game and he was willing to play. He was willing to put the work in. I've never seen anyone with a better work ethic than Andrew Garfield. He, he it cost him something. To do that show every night, it cost him. I don't know how he did it. I just was like, you need 20 hours of sleep and a meal. And, and you know, every time I see him, I just like worry, be worried for him. But he, he, he was a machine. He kept going. And um, I'm currently in Tick, Tick, Boom with him. I'm in, oh. you might see a, uh, a cameo of um, the character of Allison pop up in tick tick boom there's a dream sequence oh how fun and uh, so we've gotten to revisit each, each other on set and that's been a lot of fun i'm shooting more of that in in the middle of pride month so that will be fun too and you know he he's a delight I've, i learned a lot from him actually i learned a lot about how to be and and also how to not be there mm. was that too there was there was a little bit of that but um you know, mostly I just was in awe of, of his tenacity and his sheer, just gut-wrenching um, openness. He just cracked himself open every single night on that stage. And it was, 
it was awful and, and wonderful. And I recognized it. I was like, Oh yeah, I've been in that show. I'm mm-hmm. glad I'm not right now. I'm good. That's <laughs> your turn. It was fun. But yeah. Um, playing the angel was, Oh God, it was so fun and brilliant and exhausting. And also I was thrilled to do it. And I was so thrilled to close it. It was one yes. of those things. No show should be nine hours long. Mm-hmm. It just shouldn't. It's beyond what humans are capable of doing. It really, nobody should Nobody should write a show that's going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And I went on two different days. Actually, I saw part two at your final performance. Yeah, we were at the closing. Wow. Tears. That's amazing. No, it's, oh God. Yeah, we were all weeping. Uh-huh. We were partly exhausted. Mm-hmm. You know, we were crying because we were hysterical. We were just sort of like, <laughs> I can't wait for to stop doing this. Oh, you all were so you know, you talked about being open, but it was such an emotionally raw several hours, several, several days. And I thank you all for your contribution. Like, that's what they said. It was so long. And that the way Tony breaks it up into three acts in the first play and three acts in the second play, it was like, you watch an hour and then another hour and then another hour. Well, an hour and a half, you know, and then you take a break mm-hmm. You know, you watch you watch it in segments and then you get up and you eat something. People brought sandwiches like it was a marathon experience. It was amazing. Thank you for, for sharing it with us because it was beautiful. And also thank you for your your candidness and your honesty and openness. You're a true professional and I appreciate everything you had to say. Okay, so on that note, we like to end on a dose of drama and it could be something you want to rant about, rave about, promote, direct our listeners to consume or to ponder as we go into, um, as we continue on in this wonderful summer where things are only getting better, I'm confident of it. And I do have something I'm feeling dramatic about, which is for the last year, since Broadway shut down even, I have been saying on this very podcast that I will be at Wicked's opening reopening night and I will see Glinda when she comes down from that bubble and says, it's good to see me, isn't it? And I, I've said this time and time again in listeners, <laughs> Well, I didn't get a ticket. In fact, it's sold out. So <laughs> I um, won't be making good on that, making good, a, a vague, wicked reference, but I won't be making good on that that promise there. But I will I will be sure to let everyone know when I do see Glinda descend in that bubble. And I'm sure there will be standing ovations for weeks to come once it reopens. But anyway, drama. Okay, I'm putting it out there. Someone in the wicked camp who may be listening to this, you gotta hook Connor up with a ticket. You got to. It's got to come. Manifesting. From my mouth to God's ears. That's right. You are the voice of the angel, the voice of God, you know? Look up. Give Connor a ticket. Too wicked. There. And now it's going to happen. I'm obsessed. Really quick, my dose of drama is the TV series Legendary on HBO Max. It is so fun. It is an education of the ball culture and ball scene. It's a great companion to Pose if you watch Pose. Um, Hunter and I have been binge watching it and we love it. And it's in its second season right now and everyone should watch. What is it called again? It's called Legendary. It's very fun. Do you have a dose of drama, Beth? I mean, I already sort of said watch Clarice. That's true. I'm reading Brandi Carlisle's book, um, Broken Horses. And I say, get both the book and the audible and go back and forth between listening to Brandi read it and then sing and then reading it for yourself and then reading the lyrics at the end. And and her tale is is very... um, 
just like, she's like me. She's like, I date the ladies and you're never going to see me with the dude. And this is one of these, <laughs> this is one of these things. So I appreciate her being so incredibly honest in it and so queer powerful in it. And man, she's had to put up with a lot. I, um, I'm really enjoying Randy Carlisle. I love that. What's the title again? Broken Horses. I'm, I'm on a memoir kick, so that'll definitely be added to my list. I'm trying to read queer and women and Black authors this year. So this that fits in some of those categories. So I'm definitely going to do that. Listen, Beth, you are a dream. This was a dream for Connor and I. We had so much fun and we cannot thank you enough for not only the hour you spent with us today, but just the the heart and soul you've poured into our community for so many years. This is a dream come true. Thank you. Thank you for having me and having a lesbian voice on your podcast. I'm so um, grateful to that. Of course. And of course, everyone who wants to keep up with all of your projects and everything you have in the works, you're on Twitter and Instagram and it's Hebe Fluff? Hebe Fluff? Pretty bad at it. I have to say like social media is not my forte, but um, you know, Instagram I'm better at. And I think that's at the Beth Malone. I'm better at that. Okay. So I, I'm pretty bad at, at creating social media content, but uh, I may have to hire somebody at some point to do that or to help me with that. Well, the people love you on those sites. So you're beloved, even if you don't always see it. <laughs> we love you, Beth. Thank you so much. And everybody, if you're not already following us, follow at The Drama Podcast, me at Connor McDowell and Dylan at Dylan McDowell. That's right. And Connor, I will see you next time. Drama. Drama.